Well, good evening, EC. Uh, my name is Tony, if I haven't met you. Uh, it's disappointing that I can't uh, meet you in person tonight, uh, but that's all right. Uh, I'm sure we'll meet again in the future when these restrictions are lifted and we can meet together in person. Now, I normally go to the morning church service uh, with my family, my wife, Gen Lee, and my two-year-old son, Lucas. Uh, but it's a great privilege to be able to join you tonight, uh, EC, to be able to share God's word with you. I pray that uh, lockdown hasn't been too hard for you. I know a lot of changes keep happening very quickly. Uh, but if uh, you are feeling uh, that you're struggling, please do reach out to someone, uh, reach out to us, so that way we can know how to care for you. Now, it was the 2002 Winter Olympics in Utah, and American ice sprinter Apollo Ono was the favorite to win the gold medal in the 1,000 short circuit sprint. And with one lap to go in the gold medal race, he takes the lead. Uh, but there are three other skaters close by on his heels waiting to get to the front, and with one guy all the way behind not being able to keep up with the pace. He can hear the cheers of the crowd going wild for him as he's getting closer and closer to the finish line. They come up to the final bend, but there's a bit of a tussle between those who are up front, between the four of them. And then a slip. One of the skaters goes down, another one goes down, and then Ono gets caught in the tussle, and he goes down as well. With only a few meters left to go, the guy who was all the way back there wasn't able to keep up with the pack. He slips right past and takes the gold medal. Now, who becomes this unlikely Winter Olympic champion? Well, it's Australia's very own Steve Bradbury. Now, can you imagine how upset Ono would have been? Bradbury got what he didn't deserve. He won gold not because he was a better athlete, but because Ono fell and he was able to just pass him. The glory that should have been given to Ono was stolen by Bradbury at the last minute. In our passage today, the glory that rightfully belongs to God is stolen by King Herod. But unlike Ono, who couldn't do anything, God does something. He strikes Herod. He strikes him down. Ono probably wouldn't have done the same thing to Bradbury if he was able to. So why would God do something so harsh to Herod? What is so horrible about stealing God's glory that it deserves nothing less than a death sentence? Well, let's pray and ask God to help us to understand his word tonight as we think about the glory of God's kingdom. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your powerful word tonight as we seek to live a life where you receive all the glory that belongs to you. Amen. Well, tonight we'll be looking at three main points, the glory of Herod's kingdom, the glory of God's kingdom, and the glory of our kingdom. We're at our first point, the glory of Herod's kingdom. Last week, Seb introduced to us uh, the Jewish King Herod, who was also known as King Herod Agrippa I. And we saw that he was paranoid because he believed that the growing church was a threat to his kingdom. At the start of chapter 12, King Agrippa sets about persecuting the early church. He rounds up the church leaders, including James, and executes him. And he tries to do the same with Peter. Uh, but as we know, God performs a miraculous exodus miracle pulling Peter away from the clutches of Herod and saving him. After this little episode, Herod makes his way to Caesarea, which is where the events of our passage take place today. 
To understand today's passage, let me take you back about 50 years uh, to the time of Herod the Great, his grandfather. Now, Herod the Great was a powerful political figure, and he controlled a large amount of land and people. But after the death of Herod the Great, his kingdom was split between his sons. It was no longer one large and powerful kingdom. During this time, uh, Agrippa grew up in Rome and made lots of political connections. It was a game of political survivor. He made some serious power moves to get to make himself the king of the Jews. He outwitted, outplayed, and outlasted his political opponents. He aligned himself with the right people who would one day become emperors of the Roman Empire. He was thrown in jail at one stage, but the new emperor, the the guy who became the new emperor, he'd been friends with him. And so he released him and even made Herod Agrippa king of the Jews, uh, king over Judea in 37 AD. And over the next few years, Herod continued to get more and more powerful as he was given more and more land to rule over. And by 44 AD, he had united all of the Jewish territories that his grandfather had once ruled. He had become a truly powerful king of the Jews. Now, Herod was religious. In general, he carefully followed Jewish traditions. He was privately as well as publicly zealous for Judaism. And we see this in his persecution of the church. And it won him many uh, supporters. And so by the time of Acts 12, he was truly at the apex, the pinnacle of his power and authority. Herod had so much power that he was even able to force self-governing cities into submission. And we see that in verse 20 that the people of Sidon and Tyre are in some sort of argument with him, and they want to seek peace with him. Now, it's unclear what the conflict is about, but regardless, they know and they're worried that their cities will starve to death if they aren't in Herod's good books. Herod held the power of life and death even over people that he didn't rule. So they get together and try to arrange a meeting with Herod. And like with all politics, it's about who you know. And they make contact with Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, and they persuade him to let them approach Herod, uh, seeking peace. And they send a delegation to Caesarea, ready to hear from Herod on the day of his choosing. Luke, in the book of Acts, tells us briefly what happens on the appointed day when Herod delivers his public address. Verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus records the events of that day with some more details. Herod was in Caesarea to participate in a festival in honor of the emperor. Now, this festival was a large gathering, and it was full of people who were important and influential figures in the society. It was the perfect day to make a statement about himself. It was a chance to let the crowds know that he's powerful and majestic. Powerful because he can even affect the lives of those outside of his kingdom. Majestic because he's the king who can wear royal robes and sit on a throne like no one else. And just to add a bit of theatrics, Herod's choice of royal clothing sends a message. Uh, Josephus tells us, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful, 
the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner. It would be like a garment that looks a bit like a disco ball. As soon as the morning sun hits it, the light reflects and scatters it in all different directions as he moves back and forth. It was as if Herod was radiating light, as if Herod was the source of light, as if he was godly and divine, as if Herod was a god. By the end of Herod's speech, the crowds praise him and give him glory. This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Yes, the political game of Survivor had paid off. Herod had not only achieved imperial greatness, but even divinity. People saw him not just as a ruler of a country, but even of the heavens themselves. Herod arrogantly stands there, basking in the glory of his greatness, soaking in the adulation and flattery of the adoring crowds. Then verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Years of political maneuvering to get to the pinnacle of power, and just like that, he's gone, snuffed out, disappears. Now, as a practicing Jew, Herod should have been familiar with Deuteronomy 4, 32-39, which was our Old Testament reading. In this passage, God shows that his words and his voice creates, reveals, redeems, judges, leads, and keeps his promises. And verse 35 and 39 tells us that Yahweh alone is God. He is the one with true power, true authority, true majesty, true divinity. Besides him, there are no gods. Isaiah 40 gives another glorious picture of this truly powerful God. Look at verses 21 to 25. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. God sits enthroned above the earth. The heavens are just like a little tent that he plays around with much like a child building an imaginary house using blankets and dining chairs. The people below are tiny grasshoppers, including princes, rulers, kings, Herod. Herod's power, authority, majesty, is nothing compared to God's power, God's authority, God's majesty. Have a look at what God says in Isaiah 42, 8. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. 
God will not give away his glory to another. God will not allow the praises that belong to him go to idols. This tiny palace grasshopper stands in front of a crowd of other grasshoppers. This grasshopper puts on a robe as if to say, look at me, I'm a god. He enjoys the praises of other tiny grasshoppers who are chanting, this is the voice of a god and not of a man. He doesn't give glory to God or praise to God who is enthroned way above him. He just stands there passively but proudly accepting the praises. What do you think is the most appropriate punishment and judgment for a proud and arrogant grasshopper like Herod? What should the God of the universe do to this little creature who is stealing his glory? Squash him like a bug. Strike him down. Let the worms eat his flesh. The word struck used to kill Herod is the same word used in verse 7 when angel of the Lord struck Peter on the side and woke him up. The same action by an angel results in Peter's life being restored as well as Herod's life being taken away. And the expression eaten by worms also holds a double meaning. To be eaten by worms was a frequent expression used by ancient writers and they used it to describe the death of evil people, those who were evil in great power and authority. But here in the Bible, it's quite literal too. Josephus' account describes Herod being seized with violent internal pains, and then being carried home and then dying five days later. Appendicitis, leading to infection of the organs and the membranes, would fit the symptoms described by Josephus. And with the lack of medical hygiene in the ancient world, uh, roundworms in the intestines would have added to the king's suffering. It's a painful way to die. And it's pretty gruesome, isn't it? But Herod's death is just and proper because he made himself an object of false worship. Death is what he deserved for stealing God's glory. He rightly earned God's immediate and divine judgment. The glory of, God's, of Herod's kingdom disappeared faster than it had risen because God brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. In contrast, the glory of God's kingdom continues its upward trajectory. Or at our second point, the glory of God's kingdom. Verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. In contrast to Herod's kingdom, which is now ended, God's kingdom continues to grow and flourish as the word goes out. And the way that his kingdom grows is not through political means, like Herod's game of political survivor. Rather, it's through his voice, through his words. As we've seen in the various Old Testament passages today, God's voice and God's word reveals who he is, what he is like, and how he has saved his people and what he will do. From the very beginning, who God is and how God acts is connected to his word. 
By his word, all things were created. By his word, Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt. By his word, they were brought into the promised land. By his word, they were made into a great nation. And as we saw in our Jeremiah series, by this hard word, Israel was judged and punished for their disobedience. Yet, by his word, there was a promise that God would forgive and restore them. God's words are powerful because he fulfills the things that he promises. God's word is unstoppable. And then 2,000 years ago, God continues to do amazing things. John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God became man. The Son of God took on flesh, and Jesus Christ would go on to redeem not just Israel, but all of humanity through his death on a cross. And then on the third day, he would rise again to life, ushering in a new resurrection age. And then he ascended into heaven and now sits at God's right hand, ruling as the true king of all creation. He rules with power, authority, majesty, divinity, more than anything Herod could possibly even imagine. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. This word of God continued to spread and flourish, which we see in verse 24. The next part of Acts goes on to describe Paul's missionary journey uh, to other parts of the world where there are Gentiles who have not yet heard the gospel of the King Jesus. And 2,000 years on, we still see the word of God spreading and flourishing. Countless lives have been transformed by God's Holy Spirit as they encounter his word in the Bible. The famous Hudson Taylor was a British missionary who took the word of God to China in 1853. And within 50 years, it was estimated that there were some 100,000 Christians in China. Isn't it an amazing how the word of God spreads and flourishes in just a short amount of time. Now fast forward 100 years uh, to about 2010. How many Protestant Christians are estimated to be in China? 22 million. Now fast forward another 10 years to 2020. How many Christians now? The Chinese government estimates that there are at least 38 million Christians. And that's not even including the underground and unregistered churches that are full of secret and hidden believers. Now, closer to home, we may not see that sort of numerical growth here in Gladesville, but that doesn't mean the word of God isn't spreading and flourishing. I know of at least three people who have given their lives to Christ this year And I'm sure there are many more that I don't know about. Every life that turns to Christ is wonderful news that we must give God the glory for. God's kingdom is unstoppable 
because God's gospel is unstoppable. Jesus is the eternal king, and his kingdom is the one that will last into eternity. But the day is coming when the king will return, and he will bring judgment on those who have stolen his praises and glory that rightfully belongs to him. Are you a part of God's unstoppable kingdom? Are you someone who has given your allegiance to the risen king? Do you give King Jesus the praise and glory that rightfully belongs to him? Or are you someone who has your own little kingdom where you reign as king? Someone who enjoys being your own little ruler, making decisions independent of God. Herod, he had a huge kingdom where he ruled as king with power and authority. He enjoyed being in charge and making decisions independent of God. Herod was sure of himself and what the future held, and he was proud and arrogant because he believed that he was God of his own life. But he faced God's judgment because he took the glory and honor that belonged to God and he didn't acknowledge that it belonged to God alone. He did not submit himself to the true and eternal king, and he was punished for it. The same judgment awaits those who don't submit to Jesus. The gruesome death that Herod suffered is nothing compared to the suffering and anguish that, story, that glory stealers will face for eternity if they do not repent follow Jesus. Perhaps you need to do business with King Jesus today. Perhaps tonight is the night when you recognize that Jesus is the one that deserves all the glory, but you've been stealing it. You've been taking it all for yourself. Perhaps tonight is the night you say sorry and submit your life to him, to the one who reigns eternally. And if this is you, Talk to someone about it. Let us know in our Connect card so that we can help you figure out what it looks like to live under the kingship of Jesus. Or perhaps you're someone who has already joined God's kingdom. Isn't it wonderful that we have a loving king who has laid down his life for us? We should always be thankful that the word of God has come to us from 2,000 years ago to now. But Christians are not immune to the temptation of glory stealing, are we? I know that I'm prone to the temptation of stealing God's glory. As a preacher, it's very easy to take credit for the sermon. And when people come up to you afterwards and they say, good job, Tony, well done, I really enjoyed that, you did a great job today. Inside, I get puffed up and I think, yeah, I reckon I did do a good job. I felt pretty good about it. And, you know, even if I replied, oh, you know, give thanks to God, you know, it was God really who was working through me. The temptation is maybe I want those praises and I'm just saying it to look godly. Now, this is something that I need to constantly be aware of. um, And it's something that I need to keep repenting of when I stumble in this area. I need to keep recognizing that it's God's spirit at work as the gospel is proclaimed. I'm merely a weak vessel that God chooses to graciously use for his glory. 
So it's probably good that I'm preaching online tonight and not in person, so that way I won't have lots of people coming up and trying to make me stumble. But the truth is, we're not, we may not all be preachers. Uh, we may not all face that same sort of temptation, I will. But I'm sure there are other parts of our lives that we may, where we may face the same temptation of stealing God's glory. Maybe there are parts of our lives where we don't want to give God the glory he deserves because we set up our own little kingdom where in this area we want to receive the praises from others and from ourselves. The good marks in that last exam, getting that promotion that we've been trying to get, the bank approval for that home loan, the progress our children are making in life. Aren't these things given generously by God to us? What did we do to deserve them? This glory-stealing temptation can, be, can become dangerous when it gets to the point where we're even claiming credit for our salvation and our sanctification. I'm a good Christian because I've been praying each day and going to church each week, even if it's online. Uh, I brought an unbelieving friend to faith by reading the Bible with them. I lead a small group and I train leaders. My good works are what keeps me in God's kingdom. We can become secretly proud of the progress we've made in our Christian life and ministry. And we don't give God the glory for the work in our salvation and in our changed lives. This is something that we need to be aware of and to keep repenting of when we stumble. Even as believers, we can fall into the trap of creating our own mini-kingdoms and being glory-stealers. So how do we deal with and manage the temptation of glory-stealing? Well, rather than being passive and proud glory-stealers like King Herod, let's be active and humble glory-givers like our King Jesus. Just as Jesus gave the Father all the glory, we too ought to give the glory to God, to be active and humble as we do that. Being an active glory-giver is not just deflecting the praises that comes our way in a humble way and say, oh, yes, it was all God's doing, you know, give praise to him. Yes, it does include making sure God gets the credit because he is the source of all things good. In fact, as we start Ephesians next week, we're going to see God's good plan for all creation. The idea of praise and glory will come up time and time again, and we're going to see why God is worthy of all our praise. And so, sorry, Dave, for stealing your glory tonight. But active and humble glory giving includes more than that. The word of God spreads and flourishes in God's ever-growing kingdom. Through God's word and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can live totally transformed lives for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. How do you use your time, your energy, your money, your ministry, your jobs, your relationships to bring glory to God? Our words, as well as our actions, our desires, and our decisions are ways in which we bring glory to God. And each of these come a changed heart from being one where we're passive and proud glory stealers 
to now being active and humble glory givers. It's more than just saying, praise Jesus, hallelujah God. It's those everyday decisions that reflect a life changed by the word of God. My friend Alan was studying to be a doctor at uni because he wanted to save lives. But as he read the Bible, he came to realize that as a doctor, the best that he could do was to extend life by a few more years. But all of them would end up dying anyway. So what was the point? He decided that he wanted to go into full-time paid ministry so that he could spend his time saving not just lives, but souls for the kingdom. However, his unbelieving mum was strongly opposed to this, and she insisted that he finish his degree and work as a doctor. Now, uh, she stubbornly insisted that he was making the wrong life decision. So Adlin listened to his mum, uh, and he kept praying about it. Now, long story short, uh, he ended up going to Bible college, and he's now a minister at a church, saving lives and souls there. And during this time, he'd managed to invite his mum to read the Bible, and she agreed. She was willing to do that. And 12 years later, she joyfully gave her life to King Jesus. Praise God for how the word transformed both Alan in his life decisions as well as his mum in becoming a believer. Now, we may not all be like Alan. We may not all be planning big life decisions, but, God plan, but God's plans for our lives uh, can be uh, something that we may not know about, but we can keep trusting him, and as we do so, giving him the glory because we live in his kingdom as full-time glory givers in his kingdom. The word of God, the gospel, is unstoppable. We can have confidence that God will be at work in our own lives and in the lives of those around us as we actively and humbly bring glory to God through our words, our desires, our actions, and our decisions we can give praise to God for how his word has transformed us. What will it look like for you this week to stop stealing God's glory and to start giving him glory? May the unstoppable word of God spread and flourish in our own lives this week so that we can give thanksgiving and praises to our eternal king who reigns with all power, authority, majesty, and divinity. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you our praises and the glory that you deserve for being the king of all the creation. Please forgive us for the times when we try to be our own little rulers and stealing the glory that rightfully belongs to you. We ask that you would help us to be humble and help us to be people who are actively seeking your glory and giving it to you because you alone are God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.